on this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Tom Ward about the nature of Scripture. So we cover all sorts of topics like what is the traditional Protestant view of Scripture and how does this differ from other approaches from, say, the patristic, medieval, or even the contemporary period? Is it possible to put too much attention on the Bible and end up missing God in the process? What does the Trinity have to do with Scripture? What are the key attributes of Scripture that we should key in on and understand and know? Should we call it inerrant? Is there a better word or concept for its authority? What does sola scriptura mean? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome everyone back to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast that's all about serious thinking for a serious church. And if you're a regular listener, you know that means that we try to encourage an intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So what that really means is that we try to just have a virtuous disposition as we think. So we don't think thinking requires just having great intellectual acumen. It also requires for the Christian to have virtues like charity, like humility, like the the meekness that comes with wisdom that we find in James 3. And so we're trying in all the episodes that we do to encourage you in those ways to to just almost create a sort of like, like we've said, an intellectual culture where that's just, it kind of bleeds into you as you think about how you do theology and how, how you live your life. So today I'm thrilled to introduce you all to Dr. Timothy Ward. We're going to be talking about one of his uh, older books called Words of Life, Scripture is the Living and Active Word of God. Uh, I still remember the first time I read this book. It's probably been 10 years now that I read it, and it was just, it was fabulous. It opened up a whole new world of thinking about how the Bible works and how, how we should be reading it. So I am thrilled to talk to Dr. Ward about it today. Um, before we do that, tell me a little bit about yourself, Tim. Like, what do you do now? Um, what are the current research projects, those sort of things? And then maybe once you've done that, tell me a little bit about like what got you into writing that this particular book that we're discussing today. Yeah, thanks, Jordan. Um, my uh, real pleasure to be with you today. Um, what do I do now? I teach in a college in London in the UK, a college called Oak Hill College. We're, we're training people for pastoral ministry and various kinds of Christian ministry. And here I have the job title, Lecturer in Hermeneutics and Word Ministry. So Bible interpretation and the preaching and teaching of scripture. That's that's my job here. Um, it's a dollar. I mean, what a joy to be here and training people for for future Christian ministry in that. Um, uh, I'm an ordained minister of the Church of England. Uh, so uh, I was in pastoral ministry for 14 years and then about 10 years ago moved into theological education. That's awesome. Um I mean, right now, actually, I'm, I'm just coming out of a study leave, which has been a wonderful privilege, freed up of, from teaching. And I've been just digging a lot more into patristic exegesis. So I've been trying to enter the world of Augustine's figural allegorical exegesis, try and understand a bit more of that massive ocean of stuff, just dipping my toe in it. You asked me to talk about why why did I come to write this book, Words of Life, a number of years ago. I actually wrote that when I had a sabbatical from in the middle of my time as a pastor. And it came off the back of a PhD I'd done. I had the real privilege of working with Kevin Van Hooser, a few years earlier, when he was over here in the UK, I studied with under under him when he was at Edinburgh University, 
and I'd written a PhD on the the sufficiency of Scripture, which is one of the classic Reformed attributes of Scripture, coming at it from, I mean, unsurprisingly, with Kevin in the late nineties, coming at it from a kind of philosophical, hermeneutical angle, and wrote a you know wrote a PhD that only about three people want to read and costs a hundred pounds, um, and thought I ought to try and produce something of more value from the ch- for the church, and so thought let's try and produce a kind of um, uh, a more readable uh, attempt at, at a doctrine of scripture. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know if it's surprising to you or not. It probably isn't that these sort of questions are still alive and well, and people are asking them and trying to understand. So I I mean, if you guys haven't bought this book, go buy it and read it, because I think it's it's extremely valuable. So this first question that I have for you might actually have given your current research, you've probably got a lot to say about it. So when I think broadly about the Protestant view of Scripture, how does that differ from other approaches? I think there's been a significant return to patristic sources and patristic exegesis. So is there any distinctive you know, nature of where patristics did this, Protestants historically have done something else or, or similar? So just sketch me a little yeah. bit of how we should think about that. Yeah, I guess uh, it's a great question. I guess if we're thinking about what scripture is itself, a kind of a basic ontology of scripture, before we get to how ought it then be used, thinking just what is the Bible in itself? I, I mean, in broad terms, there isn't, I think, a distinctive Protestant view. Um, actually, in preparing for this, I went back and, and reread um, the section, the relevant sections of Bavinck's uh, Reformed Dogmatics, Volume 1, which I read many years ago and thought, let I want to refresh myself, refresh myself on Bavinck on Scripture. And he actually says in there that um, a basic dogmatic description of what the Bible is, he says, is the uh, topic in dogmatics on which there has been most widespread agreement throughout Christian history. So you go to the fathers, go to, I mean, many Roman Catholics, past and present, ask them to give a one-line description of what is the Bible, and they're going to say the same thing as many Protestants. I mean, not always. Of course, it gets complicated. But that, I think in terms of what is the Bible, yeah, that's, that's largely true. Um, the differences often emerge, as you have used, just signalled, in, well, now, how are we to use it? Um, and what, what do we think the implications are of what it is in relation to other ways in which we believe now God continues to communicate to the church and act on the church? That's helpful. So... As you think about, let's. I want to take a guess in it just as a paragon example of how he uses scripture, how he interprets scripture. Uh, how is that distinctive from a Protestant approach, or is it? Uh, maybe what we've thought about, you know, over the last fifty to one hundred years or something, has departed from classical Protestantism in some way. Well. I mean, frankly, therein lies the debate right now. I mean, it seems to me this is entire. I mean, you're probably aware of this. This is entirely up in the air. I guess many folks tuning in, perhaps not not all will be aware, but many will be that in the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years, there's been quite a re-evaluation of um, pre-Reformation. It's actually, it's often said to be a, a, a re-evaluation of pre-Reformation exegesis, but mm-hmm. there's also a significant re-evaluation of reformation exegesis just what were the mainline reformers doing in the in the, in the 16th century i mean i mean we can go deeper if you like but you, i mean to put it in the in the most simple terms for about 300 years scholars in the west have said 
it was mostly a bit silly until about 1700. And then the glorious light of the thing called grammatico-historical exegesis began to dawn. And although there'd be the odd gem to pick up from everybody until about 1600, it was all a bit quaint. Yeah. Um, and a whole variety of people from, I mean, the whole sweep from Roman Catholics through to liberal Protestants, but, I mean, particularly interesting for me, a number of the reformed theologians who I would think most highly of and have learnt most from, and people like Van Hooser and Todd Billings and others, uh, have, have wanted to be part of this overall re-evaluation under the broad, slightly unclear banner of theological interpretation of scripture, TIS. But there's been an attempt to recover that. Um, and I'm, I'm squarely with those who think there are absolutely, definitely things to learn and a re-evaluation is necessary. But um, I, just what the conclusion of that is going to be, I think we're still discovering. Yeah. Well, that's good. I I know me personally, I grew up in more of the historical grammatical approach is the only way I was taught in undergrad that we can't interpret the Bible like the apostles did. Um, but as I've grown and I, I've read more, I thought, you know what, some of these exegetical moves that I see some of the fathers doing, I'm thinking these seem more satisfying to me, more whole. It's not a rejection of a grammatical historical. It seems to me that it's like that plus other things. Is that fair yes i think that's right i think that's right um of course we we continue to need to read words as words and read sentences and respect syntax and come to understand genre and i mean there are quite a lot of people i think who come across who think that in recent centuries we have come to a better understanding of the narrative of genre of narrative for example that seems to be on the surface of a lot of patristic writing. Um, and it would be odd if the Lord gave us no progress of any kind. That would seem strange. Um, but it would also seem strange that everybody before about 1500 didn't have much of a clue. Yeah. That, I mean, what does that say providentially about the Lord's work in his church for 15 centuries? I mean, I, as I'm dipping my toe into this, I, I've been reading um, Augustine's they're called tractates, his, his sermons on John. Some seem to have been written to be read out by others. Some appear to be just verbatim transcripts taken down as he was preaching there as bishop in Hippo. Trying to read through those. And yet yeah, the, there are moments when I think, you know, particularly when he reads stuff into a number, and I, I struggle to see a legitimacy in the other. There, I have to say my experience has been trying to get into Augustine more and more, reading him, reading literature on him. Something I come across that seems wildly allegorical and so much in my culture and training says that's clearly not a meaning in this passage. If I then dwell on it and read further and let it simmer for a few days, I think he is often reading well. He's reading contexts. He's getting a flow, a sense of the flow of a narrative. And that's allowing him to see a meaning in a detail that I might have felt was illegitimate. Um, I... I mean, I take it, as it were, if he were here, would he have things to learn from us? Yes. Is it likely that Augustine is not going to improve our exegesis if we listen well to him? That seems to me very unlikely. Yeah, that's good. So here is a question that I think probably a lot of pastors encounter when it comes to the Bible. It's along the lines of, you know, is it possible to pay too much attention to the Bible and end up missing God in the process? 
So I think there's a couple of ways you could take that question. One of those is, well, you get so hung up on all these technical genre, all this stuff that you're really missing the big picture. And then I guess, let, yeah, let's just let's start with that and see what you what you think about that. Well, if we believe in plenal ver- ple- uh, plenary verbal inspiration, which I take it we must, because I mean, I, like I, I tell students here, plenary verbal inspiration is not some kind of extreme hardcore version of inspiration. It's just an exposition of uh, the church's doctrine of inspiration. If we believe that, then we believe that every jot and tittle is breathed out by God. Um, and that w- has been his intention in all eternity, that he, we would have those micro, micro-linguistic details in front of us. So to, play, to pay close attention to that is in no way a distraction from listening to the voice of God in and of itself. It, it must be part and parcel of listening to the voice of God because the Holy Spirit has carefully breathed out, um, even down to those details, just as he's breathed out wider um, choices of genre. Mm-hmm. and uh, wider structures of you know, how 30 pages of prophecy might be constructed. So from the micro to the micro, record, all breathe out. So to pay close attention to language and literature as the Lord has given them to us is not in and of itself somehow missing something divine or spiritual that God would have us. So I, don't think it's, I wouldn't say it's possible to pay too much attention to the Bible. I think it's possible either to pay the wrong kind of attention or maybe this is the same thing, or to pay attention to the text with the wrong aim in your heart and in your soul. So as you've been talking here, I thought about another question, and you can punt this if you want, but I was thinking, we're talking about literature and, and the way the Bible is. It seems in our, over the last, I don't know, 20, 30, maybe more years, there's been a proliferation of more electronic media, whether that's videos or different things that some people say, you know what, I experience God far more clearly and better in watching a show that depicts what's in the Bible than I do actually reading the Bible. I don't really get a lot about from reading the Bible. It's hard for me to read. I don't retain any of it. Would you say that there's anything necessary about the actual words of scripture that we should say yes we must continue to prioritize this and read this versus experiencing it in another format yeah i think i would say that i mean i take it the lord has his reasons that his revelation takes this particular form i mean even in first century culture he could have chosen another form he could if he chose to can not have closed the canon uh when he did late in the first century, but have left it open for, you know, as it were, a, um, a video to be added to. And he's chosen not to do that. So are other media useful? I mean, I, I take it. Yes. Yes. Any and any and all means for the communication of the word of God. Yes, absolutely. Um, but these were these words as words. That is the word of God. Um and anything else is a proclamation of or a version of. I mean, you talked about reading there. I mean, but, but I wouldn't want to necessarily make some kind of fetish of a, of a physical book. I mean, as we all know, many Christians right now through the world and through history have either not been able to read or able to read but financially aren't able to buy a book of their own or they're in a country where owning a Bible is illegal and they just can't get hold of one. 
And so I'd say, if, if someone says, look, I find it hard to read the Bible and take it in, I'm not going to stress too much. Going, okay, okay, find a friend who could read, have them read out loud to you. I mean, just, but taking these words as words seems significant. Another question. As you did your research and worked on this, what would you say are the key attributes of Scripture? Uh, one question I naturally have that falls on that is the the terminology of inerrancy. I know there's been a lot of like, I don't want to call the Bible inerrant for whatever reason. It, it, is that sort of debate overblown? Should we call the Bible inerrant? Is there a better word to use, infallible or something else? Okay, yeah, you... Well, let's start with the easier one first. I mean, what what are the attributes? There's no, I mean, in the post-Reformation period, that's, it's among the Reformed in the century or two after the Reformation that you get a kind of systematization of things called the attributes of Scripture. There is no set definitive list. Different people have their own lists and the terminology is a bit fluid. And I think, I, I don't particularly want to try and improve on that historically. That's how it was. That's fine. They, it seems to me they often, it boils down to three. So sufficiency, sometimes also called perfection. Um, necessity, the necessity of scripture loomed large in the century or two after the Reformation. It hasn't loomed so large in recent evangelical writing, but it's right up there as a big one in the 17th century. Um, and then clarity, or sometimes known as perspicuity. Those are the big three. I mean, you get others, some particularly Lutherans would add efficacy. Uh, that's added in a recent excellent um, uh, reformed book. Uh, Mark Thompson's book on Doctrine and Scripture has that. Um, the self-attestation, it, it, the, the, the autopistia of Scripture. Uh, William Whitaker, from what I read, late 16th century, he added that one. So the terminology is fluid, but I, it seems to me boils down to necessity, Perfection, sufficiency, clarity. I mean, you could also add authority. Um, I'm not sure there's a great deal in this. I, I, for myself, I'd prefer to say, and I think Bavink, Bavink puts it this way, although he listed it as an attribute, he says, well, really, authority is just given with inspiration. And that is just our basic starting ontological description of Scripture. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's a, that'll be my overall take on the attributes. So on the question of inerrancy, is that, a, is that a term we should use or is there like baggage with it that we should say, you know what, like, I like the concept, but like just the word gets, it, it's more of a stumbling block than anything. So let's use something else. Yeah. Well, here's the easy one on that one. Is there baggage with inerrancy? Oh yeah, hmm. absolutely there is. Um, and actually I want to say, well, people listening will realize I'm British, um, lived all my life in the UK. Um, this is a much, much more loaded issue in the United States than than mm. it has been here in recent decades. So I, I appreciate I'm there's a sense in which you're inviting me to comment or effectively on somebody else's fight, which I don't quite appreciate. <laughs> but you're inviting me, so I'll wade in. Um is it is inerrancy a, a, a true statement about the Bible? It seems to me that it's in, it's rather obvious that it is. It follows naturally from inspiration. I mean if every word is breathed out by a God who never lies, every speech act is breathed out by a God who never lies, um, when he breathes out propositional statements about history and geography, um, will those be accurate or will they not? They will be accurate. It seems to me that just... So So for me, inspiration, if I'm being a little bit polemical about it, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to say um, 
inerrancy seems to be to me to be um, a natural follow-on in footnoteish style um, from inspiration. So someone who believes in plenary verbal inspiration and strongly denies inerrancy, it seems to me there's a logical problem there. Um, so for that reason, to do with its, I guess, dogmatic location and emphasis, but also because I have been brought up in a Christ and live in a Christian world where inerrancy is not a hot issue. That's going to lead me to, me to say, let's not make errancy a massively determining issue of who's in the club, who's out the club. Yeah. So when I, as I did a while ago, joined Evangelical Theological Society, ETS, I, I think this is still true, a two-point basis of faith, Criterion for joining number one, the Trinity, number two, inerrancy. For a Brit, a Brit looks at that and goes, what? I mean, I, I believe in both of those, but how come inerrancy made a cut when the list was only two? Yeah. That will be a Brit's reaction. So do I look at, do I read some American stuff and think, I just think this is getting overplayed? Yeah. Inevit inevitably I do. But is, is, you know, ought North Americans to take that as a reasonable judgment or evaluation of them? I don't know. I mean, I was brought up short some years ago when I read in Jim Packer one of his Truth and Power, it might have been. So there's a Brit who long ago moved to North America. And he actually says in that book, he said, I used to think making, iner making such, let's call it ecclesial use of inerrancy to say, you know, who's in, who's out, who we're worried about, who we're not worried about. What are the signs of be the beginning of error here? He says, I used to think that the use of inerrancy for that was misjudged. Now I've lived in North America for a bit. I can see, he says, that again and again in the 20th century, particularly in North America, denial of inerrancy was the first slide, sign of what became a slide into f much fuller liberalism. Yeah. And therefore, to watch for that and be nervous of someone begin to begin to deny inerrancy is wise. Um, now, I, I've never lived in North America. I, I cannot evaluate that. the The question it raises for me, and it's a question we have here too, in our own different ways, is. I here's what I here's here's an observation I think I can make. I think I need I think we need to be clear when we give emphasis to a particular doctrine is that for strategic purposes because we have seen that that has often been the first step towards a much bigger denial of truth and therefore it seems strategically wise to us to be hot on that that's one thing and that's legitimate but don't let that slide into a an effective reworking of um, of dogmatics, of the emphasis that something ought to have within our more objective theological description of something. I think that can often happen. It's happened here with other doctrines, and I, it may happen with inerrancy too. Jordan, I'm rambling, and I'm talking about no. a culture I don't know. You that was awesome. So I, I, I enjoyed your rambling. So if you want to ramble some more, you're, you're welcome to. I, I do have a, a somewhat related question on just sola scriptura and the sufficiency of scripture. So 
I want to hear about both of them, but if you tell me that they're the same thing, then you can just, you don't have to answer both of them. Uh, they're, what? They're, they're not the same thing. Okay, perfect. So then let's start with Sola Scriptura. Um, what does that actually mean? Because in practice, I've seen a significant number, particularly of North American evangelicals, who use it in such a way that it's, to me, unrecognizable from what Protestants have typically understood by that term. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree with you. I see that here too. It's easy to slide into. And there's, there is some really good writing that, that, that points this out. A book I find I found incredibly helpful on this is called um, The Shape of Sola Scriptura by... Oh, hang on. The book's on my shelf. I think it's Matheson. Keith, yes, Keith Matheson. Keith Matheson, The Shape of Sola Scriptura is very good on this. In a Reformation understanding, sola scriptura, which, you know, strictly literally is a Latin phrase that means scripture alone, does not mean, and nobody um, who was kind of central in the mainstream Reformation in the 16th century, nobody ever thought it meant that the Bible is your only functional authority and that creeds and councils and earlier theologians and streams of interpretation, that those have only the merit, the same merit of the opinion of the person who sits next to you in church. No, 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 no one thought that. Um, and one of the things I say to students here is you'll never really understand, let's say, Calvin on this, unless you get your head around the fact that Calvin thought that the person who said, yes, I know the creeds have said this about the Bible, but I don't think that meaning is there, so they're wrong and the Holy Spirit's told me the truth. The person who said that, Calvin thought they were as dangerously in error as the Roman Catholics. He is, I mean, Calvin's quite good about being rude about people. Uh, and he is equally critical of those folks as he is uh, of the Pope. He thinks they are basically making the same error, that what they are doing is they are imagining that the Holy Spirit's primary means of speaking authoritatively about the meaning of his word is in and through an individual. Now, that individual might have been appointed to be the Bishop of Rome and is the Pope. That individual might be Someone who becomes pastor of your church and says, I'm a prophet of God, the Spirit's going to speak through me. Frankly, that's neither here nor there. They've, made, they've both made the same catastrophic error. Um, our creeds and councils and the traditions of the church are what the Bible means. Are they significant? Ought they to weigh massively heavily on us in their interpretation? Yes. And the reformers thought that. They thought you weren't really being faithfully Christian unless you thought that. So is the anxiety or worry about like these things are going to color my reading of scripture? So the thing that I heard all the time, you know, in my undergraduate studies was to avoid having like these sort of like straight jackets put on you and like force an interpretation. You need to, like if you're preparing a sermon, you should never read a commentary until you've first done the reading yourself and come to a conclusion yep. yourself. Yeah, yeah. Is that is that worry misplaced? Not entirely, but I think we need to be a bit more sophisticated. I mean, I does most 
preachers, Bible study leaders, does most of their experience suggest that if they always, always read a commentary first, they might find it harder to tune in well to the passage because the interpretive grid that's incredibly fresh in their mind because they just read it in the commentary, that that just gets imposed on the text and they struggle to see anything else in it. Is that our experience? I think that is often our experience. So I, it seems to me the advice that says don't go to commentaries as your first move aims to avoid that. That seems to me wise. Where I think it becomes somewhat foolish is if that advice either assumes or implies that if you don't read a commentary immediately before re opening the Bible passage, you're bringing no interpretive grids. Of course you are. You open the Bible passage and you have in your head all the teaching about the Bible and what this passage might mean and what this kind of genre is doing and how it works and where something at this point in the Bible, how it's working to give meaning, plus the systematic theology that you've been given. It might have been labelled a systematic theology or might have been told you weren't being given a systematic, but you sure were, that filters for you what the significant truths and what are the lesser truths and what's there and what... You are imposing massive interpretive grids every time you just open the Bible. So you're never, you're never, nobody's ever a brain. You are always imposing interpretive grids. Um, and the, the worst solution is to imagine you're not. The best way forward is to attempt to admit to yourself that's what's happening and see them for what they are as much as possible. Um, I think if someone comes clearly knowing that, whether or not they actually start first with a commentary probably doesn't matter all that much. Then they're just aware of what's really going on in their head and what then is happening when they when they bring commentaries into play. Yeah, that's good advice. I And I know I feel like I've been asking a lot of North American-centric questions because uh, when I think about the sufficiency of Scripture and I want you to explain that, I think of all the the turmoil that seems to have gone on over the last five, 10 years, I'll, I'll, at least here over this doctrine. And I'll give one example to give some context to the question of like, how do we think well about sufficiency? Uh, three, four years ago, or however, however long it was ago that was COVID happened, there was a lot of turmoil in America about issues of race and racism and how do we solve this and deal with this? And a common refrain was, we can't use any tool outside of scripture because if we did to like to think about it, to help us to deal with it, because if we did, then that would be denying the sufficiency of scripture. So to be clear, if you're listening, I'm not taking a position on anything related to that. I'm just, this is a great test case for thinking well about, can we use things outside of scripture? Does that deny in some way what we mean by the sufficiency? So help me think about sufficiency. What is it? And then does that mean that we can't Go outside the Bible. Okay. If I understood you rightly, you've got a situation where the que it's a question of the interpretation of the Bible. Yeah, yeah. And the follow-on question, the specific question within that is, what tools may legitimately be brought in to help us with that task? Yeah. Okay. As I understand historically the, the sufficiency of Scripture, that's just a at that point to invoke sufficiency is just a category mistake. The sufficiency of Scripture is not addressing questions of how the Bible is to be interpreted. It just isn't. It's addressing the question of the material content of Scripture. 
at least as the, as the mainline reformers and their successors set it up, the, the sufficiency of Scripture... Actually, just to take a back step, this would be a classic example for me of where these attributes of Scripture and particularly sufficiency and also clarity often get overextended beyond their reformational and post-reformational sense. And that these attributes are best understood, first of all, as polemical points made by 16th century mainline Protest mainstream Protestants over against Roman Catholicism. That's what they are. Now, they don't necessarily own the doctrine for all eternity, but if we want to make something more of it, we need to acknowledge we're creating a different doctrine, one they wouldn't have recognised even though we've retained the label. And at least as you described it there, the use of sufficiency for... The use of the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture to legislate about how the Bible is to be interpreted is a misuse mm. because it's a category mistake. Sufficiency of Scripture is Protestants saying to the Roman Catholic Church, we deny that there are things that need to be believed and done in order to live a faithful Christian life and please the Lord that cannot be found in the Bible. Mm. That's the point. Where so, the Roman Catholic Church in simple terms was saying the apostolic deposit comes to you partly in the Bible and partly in unwritten traditions which have been handed on down from the apostles that the church now owns and is the guardian of. And you need both if you're going to please the Lord and be saved. The Protestants come in and say, no, the entire apostolic deposit, as the Lord wants us to know it in order to know what we need to know to be saved and live a life that pleases him, the whole of that was poured into the scriptures. Hmm. That is what the sufficiency of scripture says. So I've got a follow-up question. So let's say along those lines, I th Westminster Confession of Faith says God is without body parts and passions. I think 39 articles says something along those lines. It seems that a lot of people will say, well, I don't see anywhere clearly in the Bible that it says God doesn't have passions. I see him angry and jealous and all these other things. Is it, And if you're doing this like philosophical, outworking, perfect being theology stuff to get there, that think, that seems that are you denying the sufficiency of Scripture in that way? No, no because as I mean, as with any doctrine, when everybody kind of agrees, you don't have to hammer it out and state it. It's when questions arise and people deny this and that that you have to then clarify. Now, post-Reformation into the into the 17th century, as clarification comes, I mean, you refer there to Westminster. Yes, he, he adds the phrase, by good and necessary consequence. That is, something can be said, ought to be said, to be absolutely, definitively, clearly, materially taught in the scriptures, even if you can't find, you know, here's the single verse that just nails it, but but it, it absolutely follows from Scripture by good and necessary consequence that that teaching is taught in Scripture, then then that would come within the material sufficiency of Scripture. You know, Exhibit A would be there, the doctrine of the Trinity. Mm -hmm. You know, If you're going to rule out by good and necessary consequence, the doctrine of the Trinity becomes a bit suspect. And possibly it did become suspect among people who were nervous of things like by good and necessary consequence. Yeah.
No, that's that's awesome. So very, very helpful. So now I, I want to shift gears a little bit and think it just about private Bible reading. And I know we've, I think, touched on it a little bit, but how should we think about that? Is that a necessary thing that every Christian must do? You must read, say, a chapter of the Bible every single day? Or, or is there a different paradigm that we should think about how we should read our Bibles? I mean, surely, with if we have awareness of the situation of other Christians around the world now and many Christians through history, we, it, it would just be silly to say personal Bible reading is necessary. There have clearly been many, many, many godly, faithful saints um, for whom it's not been possible to read the Bible on their own either, like I said earlier, because they couldn't read or couldn't afford one or the Bible had not yet been translated fully into their language or they live in a country where you just can't get hold of one. So we, we can't say it's necessary. That seems to disenfranchise what is possibly the majority of saints in history. No, surely that is the majority of saints in history. Um, I think that would be my starting point. So... When the Lord gives us the privilege, and it's surely a privilege we should work for, Bible translation is a marvellous thing, and getting the Bibles into people's hands is not just an optional thing. No, no, no. Absolutely get the Bible into people's hands. If someone owns a Bible, I think I'd want to put it into, and is able to read, I'd want to put it in terms of, if you, since you can, why on earth would you not? You know, what does that say about your relationship with the Lord? If you can, but kind of, don't don't want to don't make it a priority that, you see I'm, I'm trying to phrase that in a way that makes it sound sound not like a, a law that's necessary for salvation that would appear to me to be now that would be an infringement of the material sufficiency of scripture uh so i don't want to go there um so those are the those are the terms in which in which i'd want to cast it and i and i think you know effective for me as i was a pastor was i mean I'm naturally a reader. I'm a kind of book kind of person. That's kind of obvious, I guess, from the job I now do. And um, not everybody else loves reading. Large numbers of people take things in better orally. You know, some are diagnosed with dyslexia, some are not. For some people struggle with reading for a whole bunch of reasons. At that point, I want to be incredibly relaxed and say, well, if you prefer to listen to the Bible read out on a Bible app or have your kids read it to you, I never want to sound like that's a second best because for some people that's, you know, that's top of the list best. So that's in terms of, if we're going to use the phrase reading the Bible, um, I I was a pastor in in an ordinary kind of town. You know, this will not be true everywhere. The, the one thing that struck me in the years I was a pastor in an ordinary kind of town is how many people were functionally illiterate. I don't know if this transferred to the States, no idea. But, you know, the, the, these, are, these are people holding down jobs and you know, functioning well in their lives. And they, have, they had learned to get by not reading well. And even the NIV, which would be a standard one in, uh, over here... I was, I was above their reading age. I, what I learnt was, if someone had left school at 16, the NIV, I, I felt, was often a bit above their reading level. So I, I would 
if someone was converted and they'd left school at 16, I would tend to give them an NLT, New Living Translation. That was my choice. Others would make different choices. So that's just something in terms of reading. Now, as regards the personal aspect, not the reading, however you're taking the personal aspect, people in the West live in the most crassly individualistic culture that has ever haunted the face of the earth. That's undeniable. Uh, there will be some good aspects to that. There are many deeply grim aspects to that. We live in that world. It masks sin of all kinds that we struggle to see. So I'm going to make the assumption that someone like me in a culture like this is always going to think more of individual taking in the Bible than corporate taking in the Bible. So for myself, I've wanted to recalibrate and say, I think, I want to say the the normative, the, the one necessary God-given means of taking in the word is the reading and preaching of scripture and the gathering of the local Christian community. And any other forms of taking in the Bible, including individual ones that are possible, are wonderful and to be desired, but always in the end ought to be viewed of viewed as in somehow spinning out of that and feeding back into it. Yeah, no, that, I love that. That's helpful. Um, one, one last question I want to ask is, this is possibly a big one, is what does the Trinity have to do with reading the Bible well? <laughs> <laughs> hey, John, John, you put that three on the list and skipped over. Hey, I you know, we, here I am. <laughs> yeah, you're coming back. Okay, let, yeah, let's go on a high. Um, what does the Trinity... Look, I made some notes here. Your question, what does the Trinity have to do with reading Scripture? I wrote everything. Um, I th I think the Trinity ought to be our starting point for understanding Scripture theologically. Um, I, many listeners, I'm sure, will, will have read uh, these works. John Webster has been just absolutely marvellous on this. In, uh, in just in, insist in, in insisting that when we talk about the Bible theologically, we must do it in relation to God, Otherwise, we will bend the Bible out of shape. As far as I can see, that is the thing he's on about. And he's absolutely right. He's absolutely right. Um, and it's true to describe the Bible in relation to the Trinity as your front and centre starting point has not been common in, shall we say, 20th century popular evangelical theological writing about the Bible. Those sorts of writings have tended to begin with the attributes. They go, what's the first thing I want to say about the Bible? It's inspired. Second, it's sufficient, and so on. I, and I try to do this a little bit in Words of Life, where the attributes comes towards the end, and we begin with some kind of Trinitarian description. The, um, the passage I often go to in this is John 16, verses 12 to 15. Shall I just, uh, shall I just read those verses out? It's just... Short yeah, verses. Go ahead. So John 16 and verse 12, I'm reading for the NIV UK version. I have, Jesus speaking to the disciples in the upper room, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He'll not speak on his own. He'll speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. 
That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. I, I'd want to go along with that Protestant exegetical tradition that says that what Jesus has front and centre in view there is um, the, the text of the New Testament, which many in that room would write or in some cases their associates would write. And so effectively, this is Jesus's 2 Timothy 3.16, or probably better the other way around. 2 Timothy 3.16 is Paul's very brief summary of this. And unlike 2 Timothy 3.16, this is explicitly Trinitarian. And the picture it paints, I mean, to cut to the chase, is the Father has given words to God the Son. The Spirit comes and receives those words from the Son, faithfully stewards them, adds nothing, changes nothing, breathes them out through those who wrote the Bible. Protestant theology is called that concursive operation, divine and human actions running together. So the product is, yes, human and also 100% divine. The human doesn't blur out the divine in any way. So you get, you get this chain of words from God the Father given to God the Son Spirit receives those. He breathes them out through the apostles. So then, what in the end, what we have in front of us is, I mean, typically in John, it's simple words, but it's an incredible, it's extraordinary insight into, I mean, is it right to call it something of the inner Trinitarian action by which the words we now have in front of us are, have their origin, are prepared carefully handled by the members of the Trinity and then and then in the economy, in the outworking of God's purposes that now brought to us in cooperation with the human but without but without change. I don't and that kind of description that you get summarized here, I don't think that's that's not doctrine of scripture super advanced version. I that I think that's doctrine of scripture one oh one. Yeah, that's fabulous. So one thing that I didn't realize is that there's apparently a UK version. Tell me about that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, well, all the words that are misspelt on one side of the, ah. uh, uh, of the Atlantic, like um, favor, you, you guys will get, will get F-A-V-O-R. Yeah. We confusingly add a U. Oh, one I came across uh, where Jesus spits on the ground. Uh -huh. The past participle, you know, he, he, he did some spitting, but in the past. I think the American version is he spit on the ground, but we have he spat. Ah. It's, it's not much, but it's one or two yeah. things like that. That's fascinating. I, I had no idea there was. I guess that makes sense that, you know, there's different spelling and everything. Yeah. Um, so that that's something i learned today that's cool <laughs> um remind me so i think last time i talked to matt bingham oak hill had a new master's program of some sort if there are people who are looking for some sort of graduate education is that something they can do with with you take a course with you or something like that absolutely yes we have a variety of master's programs okay. and yep my colleague matt bingham who oversees that He's absolutely right. We've recently re, uh, sort of reorganised those and brought in a, a broader suite of, of courses and modules that folks can take on that. And uh, so, yeah, we're, we're excited by it. There's been 
Awesome. There's been some, there's been some fun modules to put together. Very cool. So if you're listening, you guys should check out Oak Hill College. Obviously, if you're a regular listener, you know Matt. Um, I love Matt. He's awesome. So if you can study with both Matt and Tim, like, I mean, could it be better than that? I don't know. Right outside London? I mean, that's that's exciting. So <laughs> in my um, opinion. Well, and we have some other good colleagues too, you know. Yeah. If, if Matt and I weren't enough, there are some other great folks here too. That's great. So cool. Well, thanks, Tim, for doing this. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, I encourage you all to definitely buy the book. Um, I will link to it in the show description. So if you're listening on your mobile phone, you know you can just click open the episode and there'll be a hyperlink. You can click it and it'll open up right there on your phone so you can don't have to go Google search or anything. Not that that's very difficult, but I like to make it easy for you so you can grab a copy and support uh, the authors as well as benefit and edify your own self. So thanks for listening. Everybody, it's the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, and we'll talk to you guys soon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.